Hey, everybody. You're listening to Oodles of Marketing, brought to you from one of the fastest growing digital agencies in the country. We're your hosts. I'm Mark. He's Ryan. This show explores the good, bad, and the ugly of the world known as digital marketing. In this show, we're going to talk about marketing best practices as it relates to bulletproofing your website project. And, you know, website projects are, are, are have a near and dear place in Ryan and I's heart. We built our first websites in uh, the 1999 era. Uh, so we've been doing this a long time. So uh, this is one that I, I think we may have uh, an interesting perspective to, to learn from. But It's changed a little since the front page days. What? <laughs> front page was like my, my jam. Back in the day. Oh, front page 99. And Dreamweaver <laughs> came along and tried to like shake things up. Uh-huh. And all the developers are just rolling their eyes right now. Front page 2000 with those crispy fucking outer glows. <laughs> and the, and the mar- what is it, the horizontal marquees that bounce back oh, and forth. Oh, yeah. Those things were cutting edge back in the day. And if you could produce an animated GIF of any kind as like your logo, you were, you were in the money. That's just what oh, you Oh, yeah, did. man. And every, everything had to be, you know, if you had a website that was under construction, of course, you had a construction GIF. Of course, because they wouldn't know otherwise unless you put the under construction and it had to move. If it didn't move, they, didn't, they wouldn't know. Cause, yeah. yeah. More gifts, the better. More gifts, more better. All right. But before we get there, we have a lot to talk about, obviously, uh, as it relates to websites. Before we get there, some interesting stuff going on in the marketplace. So the first is Shopify is adding a collaboration tool to connect brands with content creators. So this is this is their take on getting in on the creator economy, which is estimated to be a hundred billion dollar market. Yeah, uh, you know, we've I think in every episode we've had something to say about influencers, and this is maybe the first uh, direct topic that is is sort of not sort of it actually is leaning into directly into micro influencer territory. So. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see how it's interesting to see Shopify's take on this. But, you know, even looking at at other companies and things as well, like uh, Amazon, Amazon has like some of their new stuff as well with, um, you know, having folks like sponsored people streaming. And, you know, within those streams, you can literally see like everything that's in their space. You can buy it from Amazon right then Mm. and there, which is neat. I'm interested to see exactly how, you know, the Shopify one comes to life, but yep. Uh, I mean, I'm no stranger to uh having purchased things recommended by creators that I follow. So Oh yeah, and it, it, you know, it, it's an old stat at this point, but um or it's an old factoid rather, but people are are extremely apt to buy something from someone that other people recommend. That's true of Amazon reviews. That's true of micro influencers. That's true of all these things. So uh, it's it's no surprise that brands should be taking advantage of this. But the the fact that Shopify is making it easy for smaller brands that have an right. independent presence, perhaps to to get on the on the the bandwagon, that's actually a pretty big deal for um, any anyone that isn't a you know a hundred million dollar brand out there trying to get a product to market. Yeah, that'd be really cool. Yep. And it looks like as part of this partnership, they actually have some pretty deep connections already um, inked with Twitter, Spotify, YouTube, and TikTok. Uh, so the fact that they've got partnerships already in place for that is, is you know, that's a pretty big deal. Just trying to make it easy. Yep. Trying to make it easy. So if any, uh, any listeners out there are interested in that, they're actually taking um, initial applications. I don't know if they're calling it a beta or exactly what they're calling it, but uh, you can enroll at uh, Shopify's website. 
The next is Doritos. So Doritos always has some of the coolest marketing on planet Earth, right? It's just, it's always, it's always fun. It's always relevant. Uh, and this one, I, I don't think is any exception. So Doritos is letting consumers, uh, on, they're taking consumers on a nationwide hunt for triangles, the iconic shape of Doritos for anyone that hasn't actually had a Dorito in their life. Um, I feel bad Who for the you. Who fuck we'll hasn't had a Dorito? We'll, we'll mail you Doritos. Send, send a, <laughs> an email to hello at oodle.io and say, I've never had a Dorito and we'll mail you some Doritos. Um, so the, we're going to get a lot of requests for Doritos. <laughs> I got a feeling some people are going to lie about that, but you have to be able to prove it somehow, <laughs> some way is the qualification. Uh, so the, they, they've created a Snapchat lens and done some things on TikTok and, and really just trying to leverage uh, the, the social platforms people use on a daily basis to track Doritos around the country. Uh, you know, the, they, they also even got in on the gaming. And we've talked about gaming, I think, in every episode as well because it's such a huge space. Um, and Doritos is, a, is proving us correct. And in, in as part of this campaign, creation of a Dorito-shaped island uh, in Fortnite. I haven't uh, haven't experienced Dorito. I don't know if it's out yet. Actually, with Dorito Island, I did have a chance to to play with the Snapchat filter. It uh, it's interesting. It's got some cool animations. It, you know, it, you're just looking for a triangle. So I discovered that I do not have any triangles in my office. Uh, so I just <laughs> drew. I had to draw one on my like a couple on my desk. I, and, I uh, haven't played with it. Yeah, it's it's neat. It takes the you know you, it sees the triangle. It takes it creates a Dorito on the screen, kind of roughly in the shape of your triangle, and then does some cool animation shit, and then gives you a code, and then hmm. you can use that code to, you know, enter and unlock prizes and theoretically win things. So it's a neat idea. It's fun little interaction, uh, and then ultimately you have takes your Dorito, and. Uh, you know, kind of superimposes your face on it. So you could make, you know, that is your lens that you can make videos and things with. So more than just, uh, just generating the codes to un unlock the prizes. Hmm. Uh, so we've, we've also talked about, man, all, all these topics are kind of weaving into the other things we've talked about. So, mm -hmm. uh, Kraft Heinz, we have not talked about Kraft, but Kraft Heinz, um, and Danon are, uh, trying to get better at using first-party data. We have talked about privacy and the fact that brands need to start to think about how their consumers are going to get more and more privacy-sensitive and how uh, organizations can start to get ahead of that. And Kraft, Heinz, and Dannon are leveraging first-party data through a partnership with IRI and LiveRamp and trying to get deeper first-party data so they can use that as part of their advertising efforts and, and understand how their consumers are, want to be engaged with their products um, as opposed to leveraging third-party data with things like cookies and trackers and other, other sorts of things. Um, so this, this is a, a really good timing article at the time of recording because of some of the other things that we've talked about. What's your take on this? Yeah, I mean, it's it'll be an interesting thing to see how it comes to pass because IRI is one of those few places that you can get, you know, CPG purchase data from. Um, and historically, you've not really had any ways to tie that back. Um, I'll be interested in understanding the technicalities of how how they do that or or don't don't do yeah. that, um, and maybe how that influences some other data that's available within IRI. But 
the, the claim is that it allows that the partnerships um, at play here allow CPG brands to create closed loop data ecosystems for insights, activation, measurement, and more. Uh, to your point, the devil's always in the details with those sorts of things. But uh, the fact that they're they're making a push to get better at using first party data is something I think many, many, many more brands, whether it's on the CPG side or your B2B company or elsewhere, uh, would be just it would really behoove you to try to get ahead of that and get get your data cleaned up so that you can use it for your own marketing efforts yeah i mean i agree and i'd, I'd love to be able to dig in and we will at some point dig in with those folks to understand what that marketing buzzword filled phrase yep actually means no i i completely agree seth let's add that to the list of interviews uh so the last and, and certainly not least, uh, as at the time of recording, a, a pretty recent um, interview between uh, Joe Rogan and Mark Zuckerberg, uh, the, uh, the founder of Facebook, now Meta. Three hours. Three hours uh, interview. And I am halfway through watching the interview at this point. I know you've watched the whole thing, so I'm going to let you I give have. your take. I mean, we don't have time to go into a full <laughs> take. I, I think... If, if you're an individual who's remotely interested in technology, no matter how you feel about Facebook personally, listen to the fucking podcast. Yep. Uh, there's, they, they cover a lot of ground and they cover a lot of, you know, even potentially uh, some things that some folks are going to feel controversial about. And that's okay. Uh, but, you know, there's the no po- kind of podcast, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, yeah. But, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's no doubt that, you know, you're listening to direct information from one of the most successful uh, individuals and and intelligent individuals around in technology, right? Like that Zuckerberg has spearheaded a lot uh, and created a lot of cool things. Um, I think his take on, on things like remote working and and where that might go and his you know kind of how his mind has shifted from you know really focusing on building facebook and and those things to building bigger and better things that's why he's invested in the metaverse and mm-hmm. you know all of this crazy shit with vr that well, you know folks can have some trouble wrapping their heads around but yeah. you know I'm down with it I, I, <laughs> it, it inspired me to charge my my oculus back up and see if I could uh, band fix my headband enough to be able to use it until that that quest three comes out this but is, uh, this is a guy that had a an entire room in his house for vr by the way folks so yeah no it was it was cool um you know they covered that stuff they got into some of the you know the fact checking and you know really exposed a little bit of the sausage making of like yeah. how fact checking and sharing and all of those things exist, at least at Facebook, obviously not all social platforms are created equal and they all, you know, do other, uh, things. He even talks about, you know, the idea of, of shadow banning and how that comes to play and, you know, uh, isn't potentially isn't a thing as much as folks would insist that it is, uh, it's a bit of confirmation bias in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, even got into, you know, some things about just what it's like living in that world of just a high pressure situation, always under the microscope and how he kind of copes with that. So, 
thought it was really cool. Yeah, it, it was surprising to me to hear that to to cope with some of that, he took up mixed martial arts. Like that's that was not something I would ever have thought that that Mark no. Zuckerberg would do and and really enjoy. Like you, you could see like how excited he was to talk about it. Uh, so yeah, he was definitely into it. and and you know speaking to other folks on our team, like there are a couple of people on our team that, you know, are, are into that same sort of thing. And, um, you know, I kind of get it. Like I, I understand, you know, I think his, I don't remember exactly how he said it, but you know, he likes to throw himself into hobbies where, you know, you, uh, you saturate your brain. Right. Yep. And I understand that. Right. He, he even referenced running, which, you know, good and well is my least favorite activity on earth. And, mm-hmm. You know, he's like, when you're running, you just have too much, too much time for your brain to think. And I was like, never really thought about that, but that's kind of, it is true. One of many reasons I don't like running is you just sit there and think about how boring this is and, you know, how I wish it was <laughs> over. And I, you know, the further away I go, the further I have to fucking run back. Like, this is terrible. Why am I doing this? Why don't I do something else that's more productive or interesting? But when you have somebody trying to put you in a, in a, in a chokehold or, uh, some sort of submission hold, you don't have time for that shit. You don't have nope. time to think about, you know, whether it's boring or not. It's, it's fucking survival at that point. Uh, so it, it, it's definitely interesting. I, I get it. I like the idea of, of having, you know, some of those activities that you just, you just don't have time. Your brain has no other free cycles mm-hmm. uh, for individuals like that work in the world that we work in where you could, turning it off can be uh can be a real challenge it, it really is and i think i think that's true of of many people in today's high pressure workforce right marketers and business leaders and uh, business owners alike and you know I, that's something i could uniquely relate to him about as well not mixed martial arts because i've never done it before but the need to work out the need to move your move my body to make sure that I, i'm alleviating and shedding stress of some kind uh, it, it, it's something that, you know, has always been part of like my routine. Now routine, I say loosely because it's always different <laughs> times of the day doing different kinds of things, um, such as life when you maybe, have kids. Maybe take a few little breaks here and there. <laughs> yeah. A little month here, month there. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. You no, know, but, hey, you, you act like you're subscribed to my Apple watch notifications, man. Come on now. Yeah, no, but it, it, it is, it is valuable and you notice it too. When you notice it you do. when you get out of it and then you're like, why, why am I so stressed out right now? Why, you know, why is everything feel worse than normal, right? There's always some level of stress and especially when, you know, when you run a company or, or you, you, you're building a company or you're responsible for, you know, some sort of P and L or, or the success or failure of your team, like they're, there's a lot that that can weigh on you. Uh, and just having outlets for that, I think is, is good. Yeah. And you know, sometimes it's working out for us. It's also, you know, for you currently, for me in a past life, gaming frequently is, is another Mm -hmm. outlet. Uh, you know, those are, those are very, very healthy things. All right. Moving on. Next section. Uh, questions and facts. (laughs) <laughs> i am i am gonna try I da- you know what you know this i downloaded it we were on a call together i even downloaded it i opened it up and that's the last time i opened it so destiny i'm coming for you it's happening uh so next section questions and facts so each week we, we try to go through some questions and uh, and facts and, and give our take on some questions if you have questions you'd love to have answered submit them to questions at oodle.io 
questions for this week are, how do I integrate gated content into my site and campaigns? Ryan, this is a, a passion point for you. So I'm just going to just turn the keys all over to you. I mean, that could be like any, most of our questions, right? I'm, I'm always going to feel passionate one way or another. <laughs> I think gated content is weird. And I'm going to make a number of, of folks probably cringe or squirm in their seats a little bit, especially the guy if, if somehow, some way, somebody at HubSpot manages to stumble across this thing, right? Uh, I loathe gated content. Absolutely fucking hate gated content. And, you know, I suppose there are probably a few situations where I would go against how I feel about it just naturally, right? But by and large, I I hate it. I, I think there's, you know, and especially in today's day and age, there's so many different ways around it. I mean, Apple has built into their platforms now the ability to generate, uh, you know, privacy and uh, effectively burner emails. Um, you know, anytime somebody has something that's gated content, you're not getting my real information. You're not getting my real email. You're getting burner information. Even if I'm actually interested in your product, I might be pissed off enough that I'm not going to interact with you anymore or will potentially leverage one of your competitors. Just be helpful, share the information. And if your information is good enough, your consumers will remember that and your consumers will, will interact with you further, right? Rather than focusing on like, how do I withhold this information until you give me something of value? I'm just going to give you garbage. So why don't you give me, give me, prove to me that I should listen to you and then, you know, continue forward from there. Right. And at a certain point in our relationship and my buyer journey, uh, now I'll engage with you. And it's, it feels a lot less hostile, right? There's a, there's a product that we purchased. I I used it as an example when we were kind of prepping for the, you know, this, and I saw this question come in. I was like, son of a bitch. And, you know, there's a product we, we pay for it. We've had it for years. We're an enterprise level customer of them. And they produced an annual report and I saw the annual report and I was like, oh, that's interesting. I'd like to read that. And bam, give us your email. I already fucking own your product. I like you literally can't sell me anything else. We've purchased everything. Just give me the report. And I don't I don't need to give you my name and my email address and how many employees we have. You already know it. And also, now I'm just going to give you garbage. So I did. I gave him, yep. you know, gave him the burner information. I don't want a phone call from some random sales guy because I decided to download this this marketing report. I already have the product. So just don't get your content. <laughs> and, and I think that's that's most people in today's era, right? So everyone has a burner Google account or a burner, you know, if you're still in the Hotmail days, a burner Hotmail account or yeah. something to, to be able to give and feed garbage information when you want to download something. So marketers need to adapt. That's, right. that's circa 2015 level marketing. That worked for a period. Right. Yeah, it back did. in the day, nobody was nobody was smart enough. You know, maybe not smart enough. Probably the not the not the proper phrase, but nobody nobody really thought about it as much, right? The privacy on the internet and what could happen with that information really wasn't a thought. You just you did things. You used the same password for everything under the sun. Yeah. You didn't use password management. Like there's there's a lot of behaviors that have shifted over time as folks as technology has become a part of everyday life and. Uh, 
you know, things have happened and people become exposed potentially more to information. Well, and I think people's, the, the amount of content that is produced, I can't remember the factoid, but it's something like there is more content produced in one day than in the last 100 years or something like that in today's era. Uh, there's, there, it's something like that. I can't remember the exact fact to it. I'll try to find it and we'll post it in the show notes, but it's, it's an insane amount. So when you, when you're producing that amount of content, guess what? If you're not helpful and you want to gate your content, that individual can probably find similar information without providing their information somewhere else. So you have just eliminated yourself, eliminated your brand as a, a place of relevant information for that individual to find good content. And so the next time they're going searching for, for content around your subject matter, guess who they're going to? Probably not you. They're going to go somewhere else. And if not today, yeah. that's going to happen tomorrow. It degrades your brand. Uh, in the marketplace today, today's marketers need to be need to be helpful. To your point, it's it's be helpful, be relevant, provide as much information as possible, and it doesn't mean never gate content. It's be extremely selective yeah, about you what you do or don't gate. Whether it's whether it's worth gating or potentially even look at it, you know, um, a little less heavy handed. Right? I've seen some where you know they'll ask, "Hey, can we get your email?" And, and, you know, give me the with them, right? What's in it for me? Why yep. am I giving you my information? What do I get out of it? Cause that's all I care about as a consumer. I don't give a shit what you want. All I right. care about is what, what's in it for me, right? Give me, give me some reason, but also I've seen some, maybe give me an option to bypass it. And I might think about it. I've actually had paywalls have me consider buying, you know, paying for, uh, and I probably have, if I thought about it long enough, but you know, they'll, they'll pop up and. And they'll just be like, hey, you know, it costs a lot of money to run the site. We produce really good content. If you find our content helpful, we'd love it if you pay for it. And little tiny text at the bottom, you can still, or you can skip it, mm. right? I want, I want to just read this article for free. Cool. I won't try as hard to bypass your stuff and may even consider buying your product. Yep. Uh, if I find it valuable enough, right? If I find myself coming back to that same news source, great. When you have other folks that take the very heavy-handed approach, I promise you, I will install extensions and bypass your paywall every damn time. Just out of principle, because I know you pretty well. Oh, yeah. uh, or, mm. So we could talk. We could talk about this one for a long time, but we'll move on to another question. So, uh, what what is a one-page scroll? That's that's another question that we got. Uh, I mean, one-page scroll typically refers to this kind of style of designing a, a site where um, you have like the full screen, right? Apple, Apple has a number of their sites, that, like their little micro mini sites or promotion sites that have that where, you know, the whole screen is like one thing. And when you scroll, it doesn't scroll as you normally would expect it to. It kind of like snaps to a new screen, right? I think, you know, the idea there being to kind of control how you interact with this stuff, make it, you know, feel a little more interactive and uh, more immersive, maybe. Um, and it's it's really one of this, I don't know who started it. And uh, I, I want to say Apple started it, actually. Probably. And, uh, First time I remember it is when they did the, uh, uh, the Mac Pro, when they did the yeah. cylinder design, and they did... Yeah all that parallax stuff with within the ones the one page scroll yeah. kind of exploded it out and it was pretty neat. And when they're done like that, they're awesome. Uh, the downside is a lot of folks take them and half ass them. 
Yeah, right? they can be terrible. Uh, they're incredibly difficult to, it's incredibly difficult to design something that really works well uh, because you also have to account for the fact that you have people well, now going up to 55 inch 4K screens uh, and all the way down to, you know, a four or five inch cell phone. Right. Yep. So how do you how do you have the content there? How do you allow that content to shift? It has to have enough breathing room to shift around. Right. You just can't jam it packed full of information because you can't have line breaks and things and as much as you can. You have to you have to account for a lot of that. Uh and they can be, if done poorly, they can be infuriating, like mm-hmm. absolutely infuriating to deal with. I mean, we've been doing responsive design in some way, shape, or form since we started the business in 2009. Um, and of yeah. course, it's adapted and take different different shapes and forms over the years as, as you know, uh, as, as code has changed, as devices have changed and, and those different things. But yeah, you're, you're 100% spot on. Doing something incredibly immersive like that across the varying device types that you can use is is like a developer and a designer's nightmare because yeah. it can be really cool but the experience can also feel really really wonky unless it's produced individually for each of those types of devices so mm-hmm. um so last question and then we'll, we'll jump to the meat and potatoes is should i rebuild my home page maybe which home page are we talking about depends on what your home page is depending on what's on it uh depends on how much traffic you get to it i i think you know i think we talked about this before and and we'll probably talk about it again here in a little bit but you know there's an incredible amount of focus put oftentimes on a home page um and a lot of times at the expense of other pages and things within the site. And, you know, realistically, if a, if a site's operating properly, you know, your, your homepage is like one of the least visited avenues, right? Most, most people are probably coming to your site from some other location, uh, via search, via advertisement, via, you know, content promotion or content you've created or somebody sharing a link with somebody like it's not very often that you share just a direct link to like hey here's apple's website right i'm going to share yep the new macbook air link or or something right somewhere deeper in the site so i think um if the rest of your site is awesome and you're just looking at you know how do we drive more from the home page and we have a lot of traffic sure go for it uh if you're looking at getting a lift across the board, well, maybe look at maybe look at the site overall and see where most of your traffic actually is, and focus on those areas first. Yep. And if you're working with an agency that is driving all of your traffic to your homepage, you but should fire rethink that agency <laughs> immediately. Uh, yeah. So you said it well. Your your homepage should be one of the, if not the least visited page on your website if you remove direct traffic, right? So if you just throw out all direct traffic, somebody goes sure. to oodle.io as our direct link because we told them to or something, right? Right. Um, you get a business card, something like that, you might go to the direct link, but you're going to have a, you know, theoretically, if you have a content engine producing things, if you're running advertisements, you're, you're launching people to some, some place that's relevant to them within the site, you're still probably going to see some homepage content, but it's going to be in a more roundabout way, right? Yep. You know, think about how often you see an ad, interact with an ad, 
uh, get linked to something, see something shared on, on Facebook or Instagram or LinkedIn or what have you. And you wind up somewhere and you're like, Oh, this is interesting. And then usually you click the logo, right? And yep. that takes you to the homepage. Uh, if your logo doesn't take you to the homepage, you're doing it wrong. And <laughs> if, if you click the logo, you get to the homepage and you're like, now what, what else do these people have to offer? Right. Yep. Uh, so that's usually how a lot of interactions wind up going. So, you know, building your homepage with that in mind of like the homepage is the pathway to, to other things, uh, is really kind of its purpose. Right. Yep. I agree. All right, so we are at the meat and potatoes stage of of our podcast, and today's podcast is about the eight steps that it takes to create a website. I can't tell you how many websites we've created over the years, but it's a lot, and uh, we've refined and refined and redefined and created new steps and added and removed steps and done all kinds of different varying ways, and these are the eight steps, new frameworks, these are the eight steps that Oodle follows for every single website project. And these steps are critical. Every one of them are critical uh, for different reasons that we're going to talk through individually. And if you're going through a website redesign or your company is about to go through a website redesign, pay attention to these steps. We'll produce a downloadable so that you can have a, a nice, neat little uh, one-pager to kind of illustrate what, what these steps are uh, visually as well. So before we jump in, uh, Ryan, what what is your? We're going to talk about nightmare stories because you know you can't you can't do websites without having at least one nightmare story to talk about. So what's your favorite? Not favorite, maybe least favorite or most memorable nightmare website story? I don't know. I wasn't ready for that one. <laughs> I threw a curveball at you. Uh, so so. I think maybe we'll generalize it. I think some of the nightmare stories that we often hear from marketers or, or IT teams, because this is often a collaboration between marketing and IT, um, is that they have many, many websites that they've produced over a long period of time. So instead of uh, producing a new page on a website because it was too difficult, we had a bad content management system that no one liked to work in, we just spun up a quick WordPress site so that and gave it a different domain name, right? And mm -hmm. You end up over a period of time, if you're if you're a reasonable size organization, you end up with 10, 12, 20, 30, 40, 50 different pages or different entire URLs in many cases where you've got good content and, you're, and traffic is finding that content and you're using it for different things. You don't want to lose it. And now you're being asked to figure out how to pull all that into one domain. So, you know, it would be as if we had oodlesofmarketing.com. We had our primary website for our company of oodle.io and then all kinds of branches off, off of all those things as different URLs need to become one website. And that that can be a nightmare to try to figure out for, for an Depending organization. Depending on what your plan is. I yeah. think, you know, you, I'm having flashbacks to different projects, but, you know, kind of in that same vein, I think if I had to, if I had to pick my biggest nightmares that I've run into, it's usually usually around the content implementation side of things and uh most importantly when when somebody has said oh we'll just we'll just migrate that programmatically right programmatic migration <laughs> is a fucking trigger word of all trigger words <laughs> because you know they it's as though they're like we're just gonna wave a magic wand right and and i've i've heard all of 
hundreds of them, right? It's like, well, the existing website's built in WordPress. The new website's built in WordPress. So we'll just, it'll just copyright on over. Well, maybe if the fucking structure didn't change at all, mm-hmm. chances are it probably has. Chances are the person who built the re- previous website didn't follow the exact same procedures, frameworks, probably, you know, ideologies as the next guy. Or, you know, maybe if it's been long enough, it's fundamentally changed how that yep. stuff works or the new site design doesn't like there's so many things that go into it. And then you, you wind up at a point where a lot of times there's a, you know, you can write some custom scripting and some, some stuff to do that. Uh, but there's obviously a lot of times an expense there that people don't want to pick up uh, or well, you're skipping expected. ahead to step six in your nightmare story. So we'll, but that we'll is be- my nightmare. Yep. Well, <laughs> my uh, nightmare we'll, is when you don't plan, you build this great new website and you haven't, you haven't considered how you take all the content from your existing website or websites yep. and get it into the new one and just kind of expect it to go because that is, that can be, that can mm. bring everything to a screeching halt. And this is why we don't skip any of the steps to this eight step process. It's yeah. un, they're unskippable and cli- clients, you know, clients, teams, they all, you know, everyone, everyone always wants faster, right? So when we, we do a website we do it, project, we're guilty of it. We're guilty of we it are, ourselves. We are. When we, we do a website project. Stuff. The, the, just for everyone out there that is going, attempting to go through a website redesign project, the minimum time frame you should plan for a website redesign project is three months. That's, that's the minimum. Can it go a little faster than that? Well, it depends on the size of your website. The, the average website, and the if it's a, attentiveness and involvement of the folks on board. I can't tell you how many times we've been involved in, in a, a, a quick website rebuild and, and we're like, Hey, we can, we can crank this stuff out and we've got, we've got people, we've got capacity. You crank it out, you kick it over. You're like, I just need you to check it out. Give us the okay. And then you get crickets yep. for a week, two weeks. You're like, what is going on? I thought we were trying to get this done quickly, right? Like, involvement and you know approvals and those things are paramount if you want things to go go faster because it's you know in the meantime other things are coming in other things are getting prioritized and uh if you miss your window right you miss your 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 development window or your or your revision window we're going in somewhere else but it's it's probably not right right then you're probably going to have to wait a few days or a week or a month so the, the minimum amount of time for a website redesign is three months. The average amount of time for, I'm going to say, a reasonably complex website, not something that's like five pages, is closer to four to six months. Again, depending on the, the attentiveness of, of the IT team, the marketing team, and, and you know, your, your other constituents that you need to have involved in that project, let alone whatever vendors you're working with. They're, they're probably going to give you the attention. If they give you a timeline, they're going to give it to you. It's usually... Uh, the the or, the organization asking for the web redesign to your point, Ryan, that that has some reasons why things are 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 being pulled at a snail's pace. So that's that's right. good walk around knowledge. So somewhere between three and six months should be in your brain, depending on how attentive your organization and and how complex your website is. So let's get into it. So so eight steps to a website process. Step one discovery and onboarding every everyone wants to skip this step like can't we just like jump to design yeah well why don't we give an overview of what all eight steps are just in a snapshot and then we can roll through each one and maybe talk about the 
the pitfalls. <laughs> All right, that works. Okay, so eight steps to a website process. Step one is discovery and onboarding. And I'll just this go through all of them. Yeah. Step two, site and content architecture. Step three, site design and user experience. Step four, content curation. Step five, development. That's where the rubber meets the road with code. Step six is content implementation. Step seven, testing and review. So that's the QA phase. Step eight is deployment. Go live. Final yeah. test. It sounds so easy. Sounds so easy. There are there are nuances in in all of them, and like you alluded to, you know, getting into step one, discovery and onboarding. Right, it's the one that everybody wants to to skip. Uh, you know, we want to jump straight to to the other steps, but it's it's honestly one of the most important pieces. Right, that's when that's when we're really looking at the scope of the project. Um, in many cases, that's when we realize, like, you know, hey, we're going to need uh, these potential, these specific experts to produce content for us within our organization. I should probably talk with them and make sure that they understand that that's coming and we need their input, right? Uh, that's the area where you often find hidden logged in portals or integrations or, uh, or things that maybe weren't accounted for during the, the initial onboarding, you know, sales process. Um, it's really where you align on the objectives and, uh, and what you're actually building, um, and, and how that's going to come together. I I like to say it like this. So the, the day the contract is signed is our dumbest day on the job, right? So you've gotten through the sales process. You think, you know, what you're going to go build. Everyone says, yeah, let's go do it. And then we start to write requirements, right? So the right. sales document is not the requirements document. These are different things. The discovery no. and onboarding process asks some deep questions, looks under the hood of your technology, looks, you know, really gets the buy-in of all the stakeholders involved and what they're really trying to accomplish and why through interviews and, and those sorts of things. And then writes it all down and says, this is actually what we're producing. It, right. it should be aligned with the statement of work. In some cases, there's some revisions to the statement of work and you, you know, you manage through those things, but it's really the document that, that should guide the rest of the project. The steps two through eight, uh, are really, um, it really is building on step one, which is writing those requirements and making sure that we have alignment. Right. So step two jumps into site and content architecture. And this is one that, um, that some organizations, uh, place a ton of value in and some organizations depending on how visual you are uh, may want to skip again it's one of those skipping steps right that people want to skip and in this step you you really establish the the content hierarchy of the entirety of your website so we're going through and we're looking at uh, page structures and URL structures and how does the content nest within your site so to use oodles website as an example oodle.io slash blog slash one, two, three, four blog, uh, is a potential URL structure for that blog. That doesn't mean that that's how it has to be displayed on your website. It's just how the URL structure and how we are communicating with search engines, uh, of, of how that content is, is nested throughout the site. Um, it's a really important step, especially if you have aspirations of doing ongoing SEO and getting deep links and, and doing all these other great things for your website. Uh, it's, it's an incredibly important step. The it's other piece a good of, way to, to look at 
you know, how your content fits together and, and, and think about how a user might interact with or expect that content to be arranged, right? The worst thing you can have is really great content that nobody can find. Yep, 100%. And, you know, one of the outputs of this step is a sitemap. It's the, it, it can be a visual view of every page on your website. And what we often get asked as part of this is, so I've got, let's say I have a 100-page website. Now I'm looking at all the pages with the URLs and the page names of this 100-page website. It can be an overwhelming view. And one of the questions we get asked all the time is like, well, I don't want, I don't want it to be on my site like that. That's not, that's not all my, I want my navigation to be. It's like, well, that's... Right. We're that's a completely different thing right now. We're designing how the content lives and, yep. and making sure all content is accounted for, right? This is that step where you look at it. You can compare that with the existing sites or site or sites and make sure everything is accounted for. Um, and also if you're adding anything new, right? If there's new, new types of content, new areas, new case studies, new ways of, you know, displaying service lines, uh, you make sure all of that's accounted for, right? Because if you skip that in this step, I can promise you that when you get to the eighth one, there's going to be, there's going to be an all stop where somebody finally raises their hand. They're like, Hey, weren't we supposed to have insert something? Yep. And everybody looks at each other like, Oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, you're hundred percent right. We, we call this the kind of what you're describing, the content gap analysis, right? So we right. go through and you look at what do you have, what do you need? And you decide as part of this content, you do a keep, cut, combine, create sort of exercise. What content right. do you keep? What content do you cut? What content do you combine? And what content do you need to create? as part of right. this exercise and it kind of guides you as part of the rest of your, uh, of your website project. And it, in many cases, it spurs many prod like miniature projects and sometimes right. many like M A N Y, but usually right. M I N I projects to, to go create those pieces that you don't already have. And you do this early so that that content creation can hopefully run somewhat concurrently with everything else. Right. So I think that's a, a big thing for folks to understand is that, you know, while while this eight step process is the eight step process, there's a little bit of overlap here and there of things that can run concurrently. Not everything yep. can run concurrently. You can't run all eight of them concurrently and speed up your timeline. That's not possible. Uh, but you know, certain things can run concurrently. You can have folks generating content while you're traversing through, you know, the rest of your design and development and those sorts of phases, so that you don't have to add that on as you know another chunk of time. Yep. And we'll, we'll provide a Gantt chart view in addition to the eight step process. We'll provide a Gantt chart view that kind of illustrates, let's say four months, what, what a four month website project looks like as part of these eight steps, uh, just for, for illustration purposes. So mm -hmm. the next step is, is step three. This is site design and user experience. This is what, if you haven't done a website project before, uh, most people believe is the beginning of a website project. Right, it's the visual view of what your website's right. going to look like, uh, and it it takes a number of flavors depending on on the organization you're working with to to do the website. The way we do it um, has evolved a lot over the years uh, with different tools and the power of, of our tech stack. Um, but traditionally, you would do wireframes as as part of how you would map out what a website looks like. In today's mm -hmm. world. Uh, design of wireframes and the actual creation of the website itself sort of parallel path. Yeah, they get a little more blurry in today's yep. world. If you have the right 
sometimes depending on the the type of thing, it's, you know, you can still get into that sketchy, like, you know, we're just sketching out on, on paper and on some storyboards, like what your, how the content's going to be arranged, what relatively is going to be where. Um, and if you're doing that, that's fine. It's, it's also important to just understand, like, you know, if you're wireframing, wireframing is not necessarily designed. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you have to kind of be able to flip a switch in your brain, uh, especially on the receiving end. If you're, if you're the, you know, if you're the client, um, you have to be able to look at wireframes and understand that like, th- okay, this isn't how it's going to look. This is just where it's going to be or relative sizing, right? This is, this thing's going to be big and prominent. This thing's going to be small. Is it going to be actually this exact size? No. No. It might be slightly different, but there, it helps you without having to get caught up in the, the details of like, I don't like that text or this image is the wrong image or these, this color needs to be a shade darker or whatever the case may be. You know, it can allow you to think about the architecture of the site and the relative importance of specific items before really getting into the high resolution visualizations of like, all right, this is really what stuff's going to be looking like we really need to scrutinize and make sure you know are the colors in line with brand standards are the logos correct are the is the photography correct or if it's not correct you know make sure that it's marked you know fpo so that there's an understanding that that's getting replaced later you know those that's the time to make those changes yeah and, and projects where we do um do wireframes like actual actual wireframes um, they're usually the ones that are more complex or they're an application of some kind or something right. that's uh, that that needs that level of robustness and uh, with those it's um it's always it's always um interesting to look at those things because you, you have to train new designers that haven't gone through that process in some mm-hmm. cases it's like no take out all the colors take out anything fancy like just no, make it black and white and gray, and that that's it. There's there's nothing visual to look at. It looks boring for a reason. We're only establishing right. content hierarchy, uh, and that and that's where it gets messy too, right? We we use some atomic design philosophies and you know ways that we use uh, way that we do design. So in a lot of ways, you know, as we're as we're creating the high resolution versions, um, those can traverse into the wireframes because they're, you know, they can be linked as like molecules and atoms and and components and things. So, you know, that's why I say ours, ours gets a little bit closer to having more high resolution visualizations for most things. Yeah. Because the effort isn't, isn't that much higher to, to take it to to that level because of the tech stack that we use. But that's not to say that's necessary, right? You know, we did for a number of years, you would create, you know, kind of the high resolution visualization of like a home page, you know, each page template, right? Kind of to give you those those components that are going to be there. And then for the more complexity, when you're looking at forms and, you know, different iterations of things, you're just wireframing that stuff out. Yep. We, yep. we just need to know the blueprints of how these things exist and just know, you know, hey, in this block, we're going to be using this component from over here. In this blog, we're going to be using this component from over here. We know what those look like in a high resolution format. They're just not all mocked up. And you can certainly mock up everything in high res if you want to. Um, you're just going to spend a lot more money in, yeah, and a lot more time in the creative process. So, uh, you know, streamlining that as much as possible definitely. Yeah. Is and and that's a good point. So, in 
in traditional website redesigns, every page did get did get mocked up, right? It wasn't it wasn't just page templates. And then right. the model evolved to page templates. What which pages of my website can I reuse, so to speak? So blog page is going to look like a blog page. Yeah, they're going to be iterations of that, but they're all going to look pretty much the same. Your homepage right. is a unique page, uh, typically. Your subsection landing page, your shopping cart page, or any any of those pages that can it would be unique, and then you could repurpose those pages throughout the rest of your site. So most most sites, most common sites, probably have somewhere between six and eight page templates. Uh, if I had to if I had to put sort of a rule of thumb on them, uh, maybe yeah. less than that for for smaller sites. And yep, it depends on how you go about it too, right? Like any site that we work on or we build, you know, we're we're big fans of that component driven design. I was getting uh, there, you know, kind of that modularity. So, yep. you know, in that case, you're not really designing, you know, if we take as much as we've harped on the homepage not being important, it's an easy thing to wrap your head around, right? If we take the homepage of a site, um, you're not really designing the, the homepage as much as you're designing all of the components that exist within, you know, effectively the library that's going to live beyond that. So while content right now might dictate that you know these are the components and these are how they go how they're going to exist and this is the color and these are the content um it's it has to be built much more dynamically where you're looking at the components themselves and understanding that you know we have this type of component and we can put one or many of those components on within the same page and reorder yep. them and you know you 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 don't you create you don't create page templates in that case you're creating you know components that can be lifted and shifted and moved and manipulated to achieve whatever goals over time uh, yeah versus- and and so that's the third evolution you just described it beautifully the third evolution of how this this phase has evolved over the years right so traditionally you would wireframe everything out you would uh, you would then create high high visualizations or, or high resolution visualizations as part of uh, almost every page. And then it, it moved to page templates because of the modularity that you could use with page templates. And now it's evolved to component library style. We're going to reuse components of every page on every other page potentially. And so you end up with this, this big library of things that you can use to create pages uh, as you see fit and as you see relevant, as as our as technology has evolved to allow us to to do those things, and our tech stack has evolved. Uh, so, right. next step is content curation and creation in many cases. So, it's mm-hmm. we took inventory in step two with site and content ar- architecture and said, what what do we have? Keep cut, combine, create exercise of all the things that we have. Step four is now I got to gather all that stuff. I got to right. now, you know, I, I may not know where it is. It may not be a website. It may be a PDF or a sales slick or something else that's going to be translated into uh, some page on a website uh, or it needs to be part of um, a downloadable to support a piece of content on a website or something else. So how do we find all that stuff and then put it in a reasonable place? And this ends up being um, the one of the outputs from from step two ends up being a giant uh uh, database like of some a, kind, either yeah, a spreadsheet a, or an Airtable or, or something, yeah. something yep. to, to catalog all that stuff. And then your content curation side comes behind it and says, this is where all the stuff is located to satisfy that particular page's content needs. 
Right. Uh, and it's a, it can be a messy process. And to your point, Ryan, between content curation and content implementation, those are the two steps that are probably the messiest and where most of the nightmare stories happen. Uh, usually because um, either constituents inside an organization may not have paid as close of attention to the site and content architecture stage of a project as they as they could have. Uh, or and when, I, and when I say constituents, I don't necessarily <laughs> mean just the marketers, but it's also the the other people involved in the project, right? It could be engineers right. that that are right. involved in the project that need to provide content, and they're like, "Wait a minute, you you want that much content?" I, w I didn't realize you needed all of that. I don't know where that is. We don't have that or we need to create that. And so you end up having to make evolutionary changes of what you thought your site's content architecture was going to look like in step four with content curation based on, you know, the rubber meeting the road and the ability of the organization to produce the things that we originally set out to produce. Right. Uh, step five is the development phase of a project. And this is where a lot of marketers get very, very nervous. Um, and the reason they get nervous isn't because they don't Rightfully trust their teams. So in some cases. Rightfully so in some cases. It, it isn't because they don't, you know, they don't trust the team that they're working with necessarily. It's because usually this is where a, an agency or an organization you're working with or even an internal team goes dark for like an extended period of time. So we're, we're taking all the stuff that we gathered from some steps one through four, and we're actually writing code to make a website interactive in, in this step. And what we found over the years is that that's a bad idea to go dark and just, just say, trust me, trust me, trust me. We'll show you something in four weeks or six weeks or eight weeks, however long your development cycle is, and just trust us, we're getting it right. Uh, that makes everyone very, very nervous. So we've adapted a, a sprint-based model. Um, and, and it's usually in a two-week cycle where we'll pick a set of components that we're working on as part of that site design phase, and we'll create those components. They may not even look like an actual website. They're just interactive components. So you can hover over it, see how a button moves, click on the button, see what it does when you click on it, uh, hover over a drop-down menu, and it doesn't even look like a web page. It's just a component that is what will right. live within the web page. And it's a great way for a, a client to see the interactive nature of how things are coming to life and see the design much more quickly in the process so that we can make evolutionary changes in the development phase uh, for what the website's look and feel is going to be. Because a flat design is completely different than an interactive so design. Yeah. I think it's also important, you know, we do bi-weekly usually sprint reviews uh, where we can at least share progress and in some cases it's not visual progress right you talked about the visual side you True. know one of, one of the challenges when you reach the development end of the project is you know for good or for bad 90 percent of people equate progress on any project uh, with the progress of the ui right that's the part mm -hmm. that they interact with that's the part that they see i mean we've we've had folks that you know, when we reach the end of design, you know, they're like, okay, so we can launch like next week. You're like, no, that's it's, it's a fucking picture. This isn't, yeah. <laughs> this isn't a website. We got to go make it a website now. That was the uh, quick part. Yeah. And, and, you know, everything is, is very like rapid prototypey up to this point, right? This is where everything has to be done. It has to be done correctly. And in a lot of cases, you know, there are a lot of tedious things that can happen in the background, 
uh, or be necessary, right? When you're building things like database architectures or integrations with other platforms or, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And you could potentially go two weeks and come back and say like, well, what do we do? And, and we've done this big laundry list of things, but nothing substantial has changed within the UI, right? That yep. doesn't mean that, that your team is not moving along. That doesn't mean that the project's not moving along. Uh, it, it could definitely mean that there are, 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 are things that are necessary. It's, you know, it's the hardest part with like building a house, right? There's always that portion. If you've ever built a house, uh, there's always that last little bit. It feels like, like you're looking at the house. You're like, this, this thing looks done to me, but to the experts that that's what they do. There are a lot of things to clean up still. Right? Yep. And, and you have to go through that. You just have to go through that process. When, and in this part too, I, I think it's a good distinction to call out that there's there's a number of components involved to the development lifecycle. One is the content management system itself. So is it Kentico, Sitecore, WordPress, Shopify, Magento, what, whatever your platforms are that you're working with, the content management system side, they all have different structures by which they need to take information. And information has to be put in them so that you can not just create the website in the first place, but continue to create the website and evolve it over time. So that's so a you piece actually of just it. made a good point that we we skipped uh, and, and didn't get into in, in oh, terms yeah. of discovery and onboarding. And a lot of times, this winds up getting ha handled in the sales process, and it's a little weird. But you know, circling back to that for a moment, um, you know, it's really crucial. Uh, as you're kicking off a project to make sure that you're aligned on on things like that, right? Key systems, uh, you know, what sort of CMS are you going to use? And, and make sure you understand what that means for the long haul, right? You know, if you create a, uh, if you purchase an enterprise level CMS or something, you know, they come with a lot of things, but they come with a lot of baggage too. Um, and, you know, as much as... Uh, I have we have clients that I've I've recommended enterprise level CMSs to. I have clients that we've just recommended. Hey, just WordPress is mm -hmm. is fine. Um, I've got clients headless that have CMSs. headless CMSs. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 there truly is no like one size fits all, but they all come with their caveats, right? They all they're all littered with risks and challenges over time and maintenance over time and you know talent problems and. You know, so those are all things that you have to make sure that you you consider as a part of that because they will rear their head later in the projects and then you know into the future as as a part of maintenance and upkeep. Um, if you have a a really uh, a difficult vehicle to maintain, um, you, you have to just know that. I mean, you you it's a it's an interesting analogy that you just made because your content management system is sort of like a vehicle, right? So if you, oh, if you buy a, if you buy a high end sports car, maintaining that high end sports car looks a lot take, different. Can't take a jiffy lube. Right. Can't, you don't take a jiffy <laughs> lube. You could, but it's probably a bad idea. You're going to have a bad time. So I don't even think they'd let you pull in. I think you pull up and they'd be like, <laughs> I don't think so, dude. Get out of here. Yeah. Uh, in, in selecting your content management system or your tech stack in general is, is sort of that way. The, the more enterprise you go, 
the more niche to the service area and the the, the higher touch there's there's going to be required to maintain that in a, on a on a long period of time. So good yeah. point. The other piece of the development lifecycle in step five uh, is not just the content management side, but it's also the front end development code. So you can create a website without it being in a content management system. Uh, in fact, you should. Your front end code can live independent of all of those things um, in many many cases. And, and you're, you have different development teams that can, can work on these things simultaneously. So while the front end guys may be making a lot of progress on the visual side, like we talked about earlier, you may have a completely different set of developers that are working on the back end side, doing the content management system or the database architectures or whatever else is involved in, in your particular project. Uh, and so to your point, Ryan, some of it is, is highly visual and some of it is, I could show it to you, but it's going to look like a big old mess to you. <laughs> it's just yeah. it's going to be code, um, and and some of that comes back to your architectures and things as well, right? And how your how your UI, you know, there are projects that we built where you know if you're using things like Angular and React, and you know you, you're building an application that's built on those, you could build the whole damn thing, yep, without having to have any considerations for the back end. I mean, you have to know how your data is going to be piping in or something like that. But you have completely separate teams working on those. Yep. If you're in something that's more integrated, like a WordPress or a Kentico or something like that, um, you can certainly do some of that and have your front end developers focus on that. But eventually you have to knit those together, right? The components, that front end component has to become a component somewhere within those CMSs yep. uh, and knit together with the, the back end code that's necessary. But all that to say, want- you know, during the development process, it, it's, it's important to have an understanding of all of the things that need to happen and regular check-ins. Um, you know, and that goes for for whether you're on the on the the team that's building the thing or on the team that's receiving the thing, right? You know, having those consistent check-ins just help to keep everybody aware of you know where we are, if there are any risks that were that were realized as a part of the the development process. Um, because this really is, you know, you, you've mentioned a, a couple of times kind of where the rubber meets the road, right? This is where all of the theoretical yep. of steps one through four, everything one through four is, is theoretical. Five is when that shit has to turn into something, right? When we have to actually develop it, when we have to actually make it work. On that's multiple when device types. All of the theoretical that existed all of the theoretical designs, all of the theoretical APIs that exist, all the theoretical SDKs that are magically going to make stuff work for us, that's when we find out if they actually do, right? And I think my level of sarcasm could probably give off that a lot of times (laughs) it doesn't go exactly the way that folks would have planned it, right? The number of times that I've wound up in that situation where we have to have a difficult conversation because something you know, there's, there's an SDK for something or an API for something or an integration with some third party or whatever. And it's totally fully baked. Okay. And then we go, you know, we're responsible for implementing. We're like, Hey, all this stuff that we need to do this thing that we want to do, it doesn't exist. Yeah. It doesn't do that. So we either have to build it (laughs) or find something else. You were just sold a bag of goods by somebody who you know, maybe it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's always, there's always some, some way to figure something out usually. Um, 
in some cases that means going back to that vendor and saying, Hey, you know, what you sold us isn't what you gave us, uh, and having to deal with some of that. But, um, that is, that can be some of the challenges and just making sure that you're aware of those as you're going along on some sort of consistent basis is a lot better than, you know, letting it go into a black hole for two, three, four months and then come out the other side and they're like, so we have this, it looks nothing like what you saw before. And here's all these things, all these challenges that we ran into, right? Um, that would be a terrible way to, yep. to build a website and, and would really lead to a lot of contention. So being able to iron those things out during, during that process and just make sure that you're, you know, as iterations, as challenges arise, you're, you're also looking back at those first four steps and saying, okay, how does this impact things, right? If there is something, there's a, a third party vendor integration that has to happen. And it turns out that they don't expose some level of data that you were expecting to put in this thing. Well, now we have to change, we have to change that, right? That mm -hmm. impacts your content, that impacts your site design. So making sure to go back at that time and reconsider those, those earlier things ensures, you know, kind of success in the, in the final phases here. You know, there, there are so many details of, of projects like this that we, we just don't have time to go into on this episode, but for, you know, there's things like governance there, like, how do you put a team together on in inside your organization so that everyone knows what their responsibilities are? And then how do you make sure that if you're working with a third party agency, what is their role as part of the process? How do you make sure that that's mapped out? How do you, you know, how do you share that information? At what point does ownership transfer hands and one group owned it and now someone else owns it? Uh, there's all right. kinds of, of stuff like that too. And, you know, uh, but we're, this, this particular episode is focused on what are the steps to build the website? Uh, maybe we can go into some of those other things as part of a future podcast. Um, and, you know, we're, we're on step five, we're getting ready to jump to step six, but as part of each of these steps, there are also certain critical milestone meetings or, uh, right. or places where depending on your role, you need involvement, their decision-making time, right? And as part of the, the, the a downloadable, you'll have that as well. So things like your user experience review meeting, your wireframe review meeting, your design visualization initial meeting, your design visualization build-out meeting, copywriting shells handoff meeting, um, the development sprint reviews that we just talked about. And then we'll, we'll talk about these in a second, but the client QA kickoff meeting and then finally a pre-launch meeting. That's, those are eight meetings that kind of accompany this A-step process uh, that the client's involvement, if you're, if you're on, on the brand side or if you're on the agency side, you should know that those are critical moments of, of your client involvement. Right. So uh, step six, six of this journey is content implementation. And Ryan, you were talking about um, phrases like programmatic migration and uh, or, or lack thereof. There's the sarcasm around programmatic migration. This is where those sorts of theory craft elements fall apart and where someone looks at it, you know, a developer looks at you and you just said, but you promised what? No, we can't, <laughs> we can't migrate a thousand pages like that. It, it's, it's not possible where, you know, right. the database structures don't match or there's, there's some nuance that we didn't plan for as part of this phase. Or you can um, migrate it and it's just going to look like shit. Correct. Because the, the styles don't account for it or, or somebody, the previous site, they used like H1s for everything that they wanted to be bold. And it's like, well, an H1 doesn't look like that on this site. That, and really that has no business being 
in each one uh, for for reasons, right? Like I, content implementation can definitely be, if it's not planned for appropriately, uh, a very show-stopping step because this is when you've got to get that content in. This is when, unfortunately, a lot of this content has, in most cases, if you're if you're jumping architectures, if you're doing a full revamp, full rebuild, there's a good amount of content that is just going to be entered by hand, and yep. that's just something that like you got to know that on the upfront. You got to prepare for that. You got to you know have as a part of your agreement with the group that you're working with. You know who's entering the content. Are are you entering the content? Are they entering the content? Um. All of those sorts of things, you know, you don't go content overload and, you know, taking something that within the design is designed to hold, you know, 50 to 60 characters and, you know, you're slamming three sentences in there and then wondering why yeah. that's, you know, everything's breaking or doesn't look as nice, feels cluttered, right? Well, it's cluttered because you shoved five pounds of shit in a 10 pound bag, right? <laughs> um you know, it's definitely, a, it's a challenging step, but it, you know, this is when you start to see those things and it's when some refinements will pop up, right? There will always be something that, you know, the, the design, the design and the development, you know, went through and it looks great. But then when you start to put real content in, you find, you know, ew, that doesn't really, doesn't really work the way that we thought it would and, and maybe necessitates a, a little bit of revision to it. And that's yep. totally okay. And that's normal, right? That's not a time to start getting mad at people and say, well, why didn't we plan for this? Right. Like, let's just, let's solve the problem. Let's move forward. Yep. No, a hundred percent. And you're, you're spot on. I think the expectation setting on the upfront, whether it's part of the sales process or discovery and onboarding, initial kickoff meetings, those are the things, those are the times that you, you really need to make sure that uh, your expectations of who's going to do that particular step, the content implementation mm -hmm. step is really crystal clear. And usually the way it works out is it's a partnership, right? So you have uh, some stuff where your outside vendor will do some things, some stuff that maybe an intern does, some stuff that maybe somebody that's more high skilled needs to do. Uh, and it, it ends up being some, some collaboration of who's going to enter what. And that, you know, step four content curation sort of prepares you for that and allows you to make assignments for, for who could be responsible for that implementation phase. Yep. So step seven, we're getting close to the end here. Step seven is testing and review. This is our QA time. Do not skip this phase. <laughs> Do not skip. We have, so, it, and it always happens, right? You're, you're trying to, you're crunching for a deadline. You've got a trade show coming up or you've got a product launch coming up or something important coming up. And you're like, oh, we have to spend a week or two weeks or three weeks or whatever it is for your project size. Uh, doing testing and review, we don't have time for that. We're going to miss our deadline. We're going to miss the thing. Right. It's like, well, if you skip the testing phase, you are potentially going to have a bad time. If your if your agency that you're doing that you're working with has already gone through and done this round of revisions or this you know their own version of testing uh, as part of this step, and now we're just at the client side QA, maybe not quite as bad of a time. But if you and generally speaking, you should always go through a testing and review cycle yourself uh, as a client, as, a, as the, the owner of the project. Go through the testing and review cycle and make sure that you are happy with that output. Well, and it's not, when we say testing and review, right, that doesn't mean crack open the test site that you've been given and look at it and click around for five minutes and say, yeah, it looks good, right? 
the the proper way to do testing or and and QA proper QA right you have to have a requirements list where the requirements come from step one yep. right you you have to have those documented requirements which effectively become your checklist right uh, there are some other things that maybe aren't in the requirements that you that you do for pre deployment checklist and those are also incredibly important to make sure that you're you're not about to launch a website. Uh, that has something like no index, no follows on it still, or, you know, no meta description, you know, no meta values at all. So that when you share it, it just looks like absolute hot garbage. Um, you know, those are really simple things that, you know, they can get, they are often forgotten. Um, and you have to catch them in, in that review and QA. So it's a lot more than just looking at it and saying, yep, looks good. And really validating against your requirements, right? Going line by line through your requirements. You know, everything that we had as requirements for the site, are they met in yep. the final deliverable? Because, you know, a lot of cases, once, you're, once you've deployed this, it, it becomes increasingly more difficult to go back and deal with some of those things and, and you know, do future releases and, and figure out how to stagger that in, right? Yep. No, I, you're you're spot on, and and depending on the complexity of your project, uh, you should also produce testing scripts where you have not just your requirements that you're bouncing against, but you also have multiple users going through and performing testing scripts and documenting their findings. They're using right. different browsers, they're using different device sizes, they're using different devices altogether: computers, right. phones, tablets, all those different things, because there are a litany of nuances that we couldn't possibly cover as part of any podcast um, as part of uh, building a website where technology does technology things and something isn't rendering the way it's supposed to. For some reason, we have to track down and and then remediate as part of bug fixing. Yeah, and it's, you know, there, there's going to be something, right? You know, I, I, I laugh anytime somebody gets mad uh, during this process or, or frustrated, maybe not mad, just frustrated that there are even minor, you know, something that's super minor, like eh, it's annoying, but it's going to happen, right? When you, when you have something that's this big, when you have something that's really complex, something will, I'd be shocked. I don't think I've ever been on a project of any kind, not just things that we've done, things, you know, of any kind in my entire life where there wasn't something that I found in review, yep. right? Um, and that's why these processes exist. You know, we can look at NASA, multi-billion dollar government backed organization. They just built one of the most complex and largest, most powerful rockets to ever exist. And it's supposed to launch. It was supposed to launch on Monday. It's the Artemis, uh, launch that's going to the moon. And, uh, they didn't launch because in their test, in their review phase before launch, their pre-launch, they found a problem. Mm-hmm. It was, a, I think, it was a leak with something or, or whatever. It was just, it, on the scale of a of a of of what we're talking about, it was a very small problem that could have had catastrophic results. Yep. So, you know, rather than just launching on Monday because that was the deadline, that's when they're supposed to be launching, right? That's the arbitrary date that they put put in place for themselves. They're launching tomorrow. Yep. Or at least that's the next, that's the next launch window. We'll see. Um, and, and, and if the preach check, if the check pre-check doesn't check out tomorrow, they will push it back again because you, the, the consequences 
of having a, a, a botched launch are pretty fucking big. <laughs> yeah, huge. That's a fantastic segue to step eight. So you talked about launch. Step eight of the process is deployment. It's launch. It's going live. Right. It's, it's pushing the button, so to speak. There's a lot more involved in that. But I wish it was just a button. <laughs> it's not just a button. There's a, there's a lot more involved in that. But it is effectively the, the day that your site should go live. There's a lot of work that has to go involved with that. So our advice is never, ever go live on a Friday. Ever. No. Don't. No. I, so the worst thing you could do is go live on a Friday. And then, you know, something will go wrong. Probably. And it'll be the weekend. And you'll be scrambling trying to get a hold of people. Launch on a Monday, launch on a Tuesday, even if you have to push back to your deadline, right? If you're like, hey, we want to launch on January 1st, which we did once and it was stupid. Um, <laughs> it was a long time ago. Yep. <laughs> but, you know, you want to launch on January 1st and you launch on January 1st. Well, that's, uh, you know, maybe launch on January 3rd when it's a Monday or a Tuesday and, you know, you've got people around who can be attentive. We can, you know, you can do things like monitor the performance of the servers and make sure that things are, are going well as you start to see user loads and, and other sorts of things. Cause there are a lot of nuances that once you take a site live, there are, there are things in production environments that can vary from test environments and you can have new bugs crop up. You can have performance issues crop up because of just sheer volume differences in, in environments. Um, you know, all sorts of things. We also take it a little bit of a step further in ours. We have a, a whole post-launch checklist that we run through. So we do kind of a pre-launch checklist to make sure everything's prepped and ready and good and covered as best as possible. But then once it's live, we go through effectively the same list with a few extra things just to make sure that, you know, hey, in the process of deploying, nothing got, no switch got flipped somewhere or, or something is out of place. Uh, in addition to monitoring for some of those additional things that could be weird, things that could go wrong, things that could change between those two environments. So, so Ryan, we've hit deploy, we've gone through all the checklists, and we're done, right? Everybody celebrates, we're done. Yeah, this is the part where you go out, you have a couple beers, and uh, you don't touch this again for the next eight years, right? Uh, yeah, that's exactly, no, what, that's exactly that's, how it works. Would love to do that, but you know this is really, this is really where the actual part uh, comes in, right? We like to say your website's never done. Uh, it, it, the moment that you pretend it is uh, is the moment that it starts to slowly decay, right? Uh, you have to maintain it. You have to keep up on it. You have to uh, iteratively improve it. And if you do. You don't have to go through this process all the time, right? We use the analogy of a house in the very beginning, and we'll bring it back to a close with the same analogy, right? If if you have a house and you maintain it and you and you make iterative improvements for a hundred years, you could potentially have a hundred year old house with you know a lot of charm and character, but it's still a nice house. It's functional. Things are whatever. If you take a house, you build it, and you don't touch it for a hundred years, you're gonna tear that bitch down. Yeah. Start and, over, and you're going to have to start over, right? Um, and that's a mistake that a lot of people make is just not making those iterative improvements. Because if they get too far out, well, now the cost of bringing it up to today's standards and just being able to to work on it 
really, you might as well just build a new one at this point. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I think the, for most marketers in today's world, uh, I think most of them are investing in continued content, right? With 70%, yeah. 70 plus percent of the buyer journey being done in B2B sales before anybody ever contacts you, I think the necessity to iteratively improve on your website is, is paramount. Uh, it's, yep. it's, it's for your business's survival. It's not even like a luxury anymore. It's, it's a requirement. Uh, right. and you know, the first day we deploy the website, I like to tell clients that it's the, it's our first day to see how our clients interact with right. this beautiful thing that we've, we've spent the last four months building together, right? That is the moment that we should be learning and we should right. be saying, okay, well, are people doing what we thought they would do? Are they taking the paths that we have laid out for them? Are they taking the breadcrumbs, so to speak, that we want them to take and, and following those paths that we want them to go down? Or are they doing something unexpected? And should we be right. doing, should we be making changes to our, our components that we've created as part of this website so that, uh, that, that prospective users are finding the content easier, quicker, and, and going down the pathways that we, that we believe they should be going down as part of the buyer journey. So maybe we could do a completely different podcast on, on what that looks like and, and you know, how, what is a, what does a website maintenance plan look like? What does a, how, how does that, how, how do we determine a healthy balance of, of maintaining that over time? So, yeah. but I think that's the end of, of this one. Uh, it's a, it's a long one. We've got a lot to say about websites. There's, there's so, a lot more that goes into it, but there's a, you know, we could spend it, six more hours. I think follow a process. Don't skip the steps. Uh, you'll have a, you'll have a better time for sure. Absolutely. Uh, so you've reached the end of the oodles of marketing podcast. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Make sure you subscribe. So you never miss any future episodes. We'll be dropping episodes every two weeks with the intent of going to every week, uh, here in, in short order. You can find us on social at think oodle. And if you'd like to learn more, uh, about any of the things about today's episode, hit the links in the in the show notes. Follow us on the social channels. And if you've reached the end this far and you're looking for any sort of agency life experiences, head over to our jobs page at oodle.io slash jobs. Thanks for watching. We're done.